This is recording number 10950 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, October 30, 2011. This is the 27th message in the series titled, Doctor's Gospel. This message by Randy Bolt is titled, The Cross. We're going to continue our study called The Doctor's Gospel, and actually we will be concluding this study next week, believe it or not. Now, as we uh, open Luke 23, we are in the, the throes of the events leading up to and including the crucifixion. And I want to talk today, talk to you today about the cross. You may have noticed that Christians tend to use the cross a lot as a symbol of our faith. How many of you have a cross around your neck today? Okay, just you. <laughs> I'm glad you do. Um, we... Uh, we have a cross in our church's logo, our little CR logo. We, we use the cross to identify ourselves as people who are followers of Christ. But you know, it's a kind of a... It's a hard symbol. It's a harsh symbol. The cross is a tough symbol. It's not a clean, pretty, uh, no matter how we try to, sp um, to um, dress it up, we can't avoid the fact that somebody died there, and not just anybody, the Son of God, for me, for you. So it's a tough symbol, but it means so much. And the ubiquitous nature of the, the, the uh, symbol of the cross in, in, in around the world, in, our, in various aspects of our culture, not even related to, to uh, Christendom. When I, when I asked a minute ago how many of you were wearing a cross around your neck, there's a lot of people out on the street today that would have raised their hand and say, yeah, I am, and have absolutely no idea why. And, the re and because that's the case... Sometimes we minimize, or we can minimize, the importance of the cross. But today, I want for us to take a, just a, I want us to linger, I guess is probably the best way to describe it. I want us to linger a bit on the subject of the cross. I'm going to ask you to begin reading with me at verse 21 of chapter 23 of the Gospel of Luke. And as we begin the, the reading this morning, some stuff is going on. Jesus has been brought before Pilate. He has then been transferred because Pilate, uh, you know, he was unwilling to get embroiled in this mess that the, the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders had brought him when they came to 
to having conducted their own religious trial of Jesus, brought him to the official Roman authority in Jerusalem, Pilate, because he was the only one with, who could actually pronounce a death sentence on Jesus. They brought him to Pilate, and Pilate, uh, even an a, a ungodly, godless man, as Pilate was, apparently, uh, couldn't find any reason why Jesus should be held, let alone put to death. And, uh, but he was facing a, a crowd of, uh, of uh, pretty significant proportions and pretty intense in, in, in terms of their demands. And so he found a way to sort of pass the buck and he sent Jesus to Herod, uh, who was the uh, Roman or the puppet Roman um, ruler of the, so to speak, the monarch kind of in a puppet fashion of the Galilee region where Jesus was from and he happened to be in Jerusalem because of the Passover celebration so uh, Pilate passed him off to him so Jesus has been to the before the Sanhedrin before the the religious tribunal he's been before Pilate he's been before Herod and in each venue been abused physically emotionally and now he's back to Pilate Pilate comes out before the crowds and he's making the case for why this is insanity. What are we doing here? This guy's not committed any wrong. And that's the backdrop of ver- that we co- have be- behind us as we come to verse 21. But they shouted saying, crucify him, crucify him. Then he said to them the third time, why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And he's saying this because we didn't read the part where it it says that at this time of year, it was his custom to release a prisoner, a Jewish prisoner that that had been held by the Romans to release them as a token of, you know, Rome's largesse during the Passover season. And so he's making the case, let's let Jesus be this guy that we released this year. But they were insistent, verse 23 said, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. That means go to the cross. They're demanding the type of of, uh, capital punishment that should be administered, crucifixion. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested and he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus into their will, or, or to their will. Now this one that he released to them, earlier in the chapter is identified as a guy named Barabbas. And when Pilate first suggested that Jesus might be the person released, the prisoner released for the Passover, uh, at the Passover uh, time, Uh, They said, no, we want Jesus to be uh, crucified and um, we want Barabbas to be released. And Barabbas, as we're told here, was in prison for rebellion against Rome and for murder. This guy was guilty of some serious crimes. But as a result of the cross, a guilty man went free. This rough, harsh, troubling symbol depicts 
the key that unlocks the door to my liberty and to yours. For we are guilty of sin. First of all, we're guilty of the sin of our race, which is rebellion against God. And then, can I just tell you, I'm guilty of my own rebellion against God as well. Perhaps you are too. In fact, the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When Jesus went to that cross, not only did he go in Barabbas' place, because that's what happened, right? An exchange took place. Jesus went to the cross and Barabbas went free. Not only did that happen, Jesus went to the cross and I went free. The cross forever stands as the symbol of guilty men and women finding freedom. Verse 26. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. You've probably seen depictions of this in film and pageants and so on. But <laughs> here's this guy, Simon, from Cyrene. It says he just, he just happened to be in the wrong place at the right time or wrong time or the right place at the right time, however you want to look at it. But he wasn't planning on this happening. He's coming in from, out of the, uh, from the countryside, probably because it's Passover and to be in Jerusalem on Passover was an important thing. But he's just, he's just making his way. He's just, uh, you know, a, a, he's just a guy who happens to be on the scene. And they grab him and, they, and Simon of Cyrene has an encounter with the cross. He ends up carrying, we don't know how, how far it was the custom that a, a man on, a way, on the way to crucifixion would carry his own cross. But because of the abuse that Jesus had suffered, the, the incredible amount of physical torture that had been inflicted on him, apparently he didn't have the, the physical strength to take it all away. So they grabbed this guy off the street, Simon from Cyrene. And uh, he shoulders the cross. But this guy, this anonymous guy, Simon, has an encounter with the cross. Now it's very interesting though, how the cross impacted Simon's life. In Mark chapter 15 verse 21, Mark is another gospel writer. And in his account of these events, he describes Simon as the father of of Alexander and Rufus. Now the reason for this is because Alexander and Rufus had become well known to the Christian church. By the time Mark is writing his gospel, uh, quite a while after these, many years after these, these events, probably around 70 AD or I don't know, you know, you, there's so many different opinions, but a, a significant amount of time after these events, Mark who is writing uh, these, uh, this report of the account of Jesus' life, he, he knows that the people he's writing to will recognize who Simon is because they all know his sons, Alexander and Rufus. 
In a few weeks, Sue and I are going to go visit our son up in Portland, Oregon, and we're going to visit his church for the first time. He's been attending a, a new church that we have not yet been to. When we go there, we will be, we will be introduced as Jeremy's mom and dad because they know him and they don't yet know us. So Mark, when he was writing, he said, I want to introduce to you a character named Simon. He's, he's Alexander's and Rufus's father. That means, that means that Simon's encounter with the cross changed his family history. His sons become part of the church of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 16, verse 13, as Paul, you know, Romans is Paul's, probably his greatest uh, book, his greatest treatise on the, on the gospel. It's a book of tremendous theology and, and all. At the close of it, he, he sends greetings to a lot of different people. And in verse 13 of Romans 16, there, as, the, as his letter, his epistle is closing, he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, and mine. Now, that doesn't mean that, that uh, Rufus and Alexander's mother was also Paul's mother, but it means that she had that kind of impact on his life. The Apostle Paul, probably the most well-known Christian, impacted by the life of the wife of this guy, Simon, who had an encounter with the cross. A chance, quote, quote, encounter with the cross. How many of you, don't raise your hand, this is a rhetorical question. I don't want to get you in trouble with your spouse or whatever. How many of you could use a change in your family history? One of the things, this, this may sound really odd, but one of the things I know that the Lord spoke to me pretty early on in my life as a Christian was that he wanted to so work in my life that a new branch of my family would begin. That the one that I was born to had enough poison in it that a new branch needed to be made. Listen, the cross, the cross will change your life. And every, every day that follows your encounter with that powerful symbol. Verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him. So you know the story. On the right and left of Jesus, the three, three criminals or three accused men were were uh, crucified that day. Two were criminals. One was the Son of God. But on the right and left of Jesus were these two accused, guilty criminals. One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then that guy, then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, 
Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, uh, I was talking to Chris Amitrano the other day. He's our youth pastor, most of you know. And he was talking about one of the students, aside from serving our congregation as a youth pastor, he, he makes his living working with middle schoolers uh, for the Boys and Girls Club. And uh, so he was telling me about an encounter that he had one, with one of the students. You know, they're not supposed to proselytize in his, in his work. Uh, but he can answer questions that uh, one of the kids brings him. And this, these kids came to him with some spiritual questions. As a result of the con- conversation that they initiated, he asked one of them, he said, So, are you going to heaven? And uh, she said, oh yeah, my, I, I'm, I'm a good person. And many people have this idea that life is about getting enough points with God, good points with God, that it outweighs our bad points. That we do enough good that the, that the scale tips in our favor towards heaven. That somehow, when we pass from this life into the next, we're going to stand before a judge who's going to weigh uh, our life's works. And that if there's enough good to overcome the bad, we go to heaven. Is that not true? I think most people in the world think about the afterlife in some form like that. Here's a guy who's hanging on the cross because he is guilty of a, of a crime worthy of capital punishment. His life's good has not outweighed the bad. Jesus says to him, as he responds humbly, asking, Lord, when you come in, Lord, first of all, is such a a remarkable uh, term that he used there, indicating his, his understanding of who this guy was. And... A humility. Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Had nothing to do, nothing to do with good outweighing bad. Had nothing to do with what kind of person he was. Had everything to do and only to do with his faith. The cross is the intersection between faith and And grace, that place where the grace, the unmerited favor of God meets the faith of men and women that results in eternal life. That criminal experienced that today, that day. And many of us in this room have. Some will today, I believe. Right here, right now. Verse 44 Now it was about the sixth hour, that's about noon. And there was darkness over all the earth, which is kind of a significant thing, don't you think? It's the middle of the day, noon, and yet darkness is covering the earth. Until the ninth hour, that'd be three o'clock. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. That's not a significant, uh, an insignificant event. The veil was a sizable hunk of fabric that separated the people from the most holy place in the temple. A symbol of you can only go so far in your 
sin-scarred condition. You can't get to where God's presence is manifest. You can only go so far. But because of the cross and what Jesus did there, that separation melted away. And you and I can have access to the holy place, to God himself, almighty, through his saving grace. But that's not the point I want to make here. Verse 46, Then and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, a centurion is a Roman soldier in charge of a hundred men. He's got a lot of power, a lot of authority, uh, well, uh, and in most cases, um, a lot of respect. And he obviously was in charge of what was going on in this crucifixion. And it says that when the centurion saw what had happened, these things I just described, the darkness, the rending of the veil, the, all that went on as he observed the conversation with Jesus and the two criminals and everything before that, when he observed what had happened, it says he glorified God. This Roman centurion glorified or praised God as a result of his encounter with the cross. And then he says, this was a righteous man. Which is a very faith-filled statement. It's not all the way there. I mean, we can't really judge what was going on in his heart, but it seems as though it was, he came a little bit short of recognizing Jesus as the Son of God, which is required for salvation. That's what we come to. That's, that's what causes a person to be saved. Is that we, re, we recognize, we come to a point, of, a point of belief that Jesus is the Son of God and He died there in my place. He died there to pay for my sin. That's what causes a man and a woman to pass from, from doubt into faith and become a child of God. We don't know that He did that. But He sure came a long way. The God, the, his encounter with the cross took an idolatrous Roman, because all the Romans, uh, I mean, they had many gods, but they all pledged allegiance to uh, Caesar as God. This guy, observing a man die, says, wow, I'm going to praise that man's God because of what I have seen today. He is a righteous man. So whatever the eternal uh, destiny of that man's soul, I, I can't say. But I can tell you this, that the cross is a cross-cultural, a cross, pun intended, cultural symbol. It speaks every language. Whether you're Roman, a Gentile, whether you're a Jew, the cross speaks surfer. The cross speaks ghetto. The cross speaks Mandarin and Swahili, Spanish. The cross speaks every language. You know, in Acts chapter 10, this same writer, Luke, he's the author of the book of Acts. Luke is the his treatise on the 
Life and Ministry of Jesus, Acts is volume two that describes the, the birth and the initial um, expansion of the church of Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 10, the gospel finally breaks out of the Jewish ghetto and Gentiles begin to be converted. You know who the first Gentile convert was? A Roman centurion. And you know, we can't know, there's no way for us to know, but we also cannot count out the fact that it was the same guy. Because the Roman centurion, Cornelius, that Acts chapter 10 describes, was a man who believed in the Jewish God, did not yet know Jesus as Savior, but believed in the Jewish God and was pursuing him. And because of that, God sent an angel to tell him how to go find a guy named Peter who would come and tell him what he needed to do next. And when Peter showed up and preached Jesus, Cornelius was first in line to say, that's what I want. Whether it's the same guy or not, the encounter that a Roman centurion had on the day of Christ's crucifixion prefigured at least the fact that the cross was not meant for Jews alone, but for Gentiles, for Cambodians, for Uzbek, what do they call them? Uzbeks or <laughs> people from Uzbekistan? <laughs> If you're one of them, I'm sorry. I know I just butchered that. The cross is for everyone. I'd like to ask you uh, to say your things aside now and stand with me as we conclude this service. And the worship team is going to come. They're going to lead us in a song that says, What can I do? What can I do? It talks about when I consider the cross. What can I do but give praise to God? What can I do but let my heart open towards Him with gratitude and thanksgiving and worship like that, that uh, godless centurion. This hard, rough, rugged symbol means everything.